1: can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Anna Lindner, your host, and today we're talking to Nicholas Mirzev about his book, White Sight. Nick, thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. Nice to see you, Anna. Yeah. Um, So Nicholas Mirzov is a visual activist working at the intersection of politics and global slash digital visual culture. His works include The Appearance of Black Lives Matter, How to See the World, The Right to Look, A Counter History of Visuality, which won the Ann Friedberg Award for Innovative Scholarship from the Society of Cinema and Media Studies in 2013, and of course, White Sight, which was just published and we're going to be talking about today. He's considered one of the founders of the academic discipline of visual culture, evident in his books such as An Introduction to Visual Culture and The Visual Culture Reader. All right, so um, I actually had the immense pleasure of taking one of Nick's decolonizing media courses, uh, at New York university when I was a very beginning master's student back in 2017. Um, so as soon as I saw this book, I knew I had to talk to you about it because, um, that class was really my crash course in any type of decolonial thought. I hadn't really been exposed before, And now shapes my work um, because I look at whiteness in the context of colonialism and slavery um, in the Caribbean. So just to talk talk briefly to us about kind of where this book came from, uh, what you were doing, you know, when it was happening, when it was being written, because I know that's formative in how the book was written.
1: Thanks, Anna, and it's very nice to make this connection back across time like that, to see that teaching doesn't just go into a void, you know, that good things come from it, and uh, that's always exciting to see. Your question's right on point, actually, because I've been thinking about this a lot, because the book is literally out in the world tomorrow, and there are two ways of answering this question. One is to say how it happened, and the other is to say, well, why didn't it happen sooner, And both of them are relevant, but more specifically, why did it happen? In 2016, three things happened. I was in London when Brexit passed, and there was a strange feeling of a shift in what it was possible to say, what it was possible to do, and none of it was good. And I came back to the United States saying to people, Trump could win. And very few people believed me. And we all know how that turned out. And so the beginning of 2017, suddenly we were in a very different space. And I had been blogging a little bit and giving public lectures and so on, saying, look, we really have to now put the question of white supremacy and whiteness front center, those of us who are white identified, whether we like it or not. But at the same time, I had to be honest that I wasn't entirely clear what the direction to do that was. Until, later that year, we had the rally at Charlottesville around the statue of Robert E. Lee. And a number of things immediately became clear to me. One was that as a scholar and writer around visual culture, here was the way to think about this. The second was to realise that it did connect back a long way into the beginnings of our thinking about the field that's become visual culture, because in the 1990s, we had actually discussed monuments and museums and these kinds of things pretty extensively. And we made a mistake, which was that we assumed that they were historical relics, that they were going to, as it were, fade away. As I think we thought white supremacy itself was a historical relic that was going to fade away, and that one did not want to give it too much credit as it were to focus on it, because that would give it publicity or some such thing. But what became very immediately apparent in 2016 and 17 was that that was not what had happened and that we needed to start to think about things in a much different time frame. One of the ways I like to think about this is that Stuart Hall used to say, you know what? There's, However radical you are, there's a little neoliberal in your head. And he used to say, this is like... When you go to Sainsbury's, which is the upscale British supermarket, before you go to the, the march or the protest. And I think this is what was happening here, but I call it micro-liberalism, which was a, is a kind of way of thinking that even though we didn't really believe that the rules-based contract system of social government administration worked, I wonder if we kind of thought that maybe it would, at least in this area, because of the civil rights movement, because of that history. And when I say we, I want to be clear here that I am again talking about white-identified, white-presenting people. People of color, BIPOC folks, always knew this. And they've been telling us if we've been willing to listen, right? So now I see this in a much longer historical framework that goes back 500 years to the beginnings of white settlement and expansion out of Europe into Asia, Africa, and, of course, the Americas, and to see this then as a specific incident or moment in this much longer history. And that's what the book sets out to describe. So the way I started by writing a book that was going to be about the very recent 21st century, it immediately became apparent to me that that wasn't going to answer any questions at all. That you had to respond to the way that abolitionists and black thinkers and indigenous thinkers have been framing this in this longer term. And I think another part of that is to think of this in terms of the climate catastrophe that confronts us, which is equally a product of that history. And so that to break things down into the traditional academic components of a narrow period of time and space is to miss the point as we did, frankly, collectively, in the 1990s and early 2000s. There was this hope. There was this hope that somehow Obama and whatever whatever is attached to that proper name would somehow continue the progressive movements and the radical movements of the 60s and 70s. That was naive. I hope now we're in a moment of greater clarity. And that this then is the beginning, I hope, not the end of a broader collective conversation, again, amongst folks that are white-identified and white-presenting. I'm fairly clear that it's not a conversation that really needs to be had amongst BIPOC folks who have been having this conversation for 500 years. And keep saying to us and said to us repeatedly during the Black Lives Matter movement of 2014-16 and then again in 2020, white people, you need to pay attention to this. This is your mess. And so all I would say about this book is that it is my attempt to respond to that call and to be a participant in that movement and to hopefully begin some conversations and critiques of this legacy that we've encountered and inherited.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for summarizing that because those moments in 2016, 2017, I felt that same shift. And it was partly because I was transitioning from undergraduate to an AmeriCorps position where I was working with uh, people who were mostly migrants, immigrants, refugees from Latin America who are trying to learn English and then transitioning into my master's program In media, culture, and communication, which is again bringing all that together in a way that's just so powerful. And then I had been involved in this race, racial reconciliation, then racial diversity, then racial justice kind of ethos my whole life. But you were the first person who really reframed that for me and made it about white supremacy, or not made it about white supremacy, but was invested in unveiling white supremacy and pointing to that as the root of the problem while deeply rooting it in these black Marxist liberal emancipatory projects that I'd, you know, read about and was obviously very invested in and cared about and was interested in. And I just, no one had ever put it all together that way. And I just think the way that you're doing that is so powerful and so necessary. And that precipitated a shift for me in my work. And I started looking at critical whiteness studies in 2017. Um, And now I'm doing that work too, where it's the kind of the mutually constitutive nature of race, racialization as a dynamic and socially constructed process in terms of whiteness and blackness and Latinidad kind of mutually constituting each other. Um, And then the other part of who you were as an instructor and a person when I met you in 2017 was also this very strong decolonial activist side that was very embodied. And rather than kind of this, uh, obviously, ivory tower, ivory tower ish discourse um, that the neoliberal kind of in all of us says enough. And I I was able to see you actually doing this on the street and protesting and unveiling white supremacy in the street. And it, it was just really impactful for me. Um so thank you for the work you do and thank you for so powerfully summarizing what the problem is and um why we need to care about this. So and you talk about, you know, the plantation, et cetera, which we'll get to in a bit, but the title of your book is "White Sight" because you are, you know, a visual cultural, visual culture historian or um, scholar. Sorry, I'm a historian. Um, I would count you maybe as a historian as well. Um, and you you put forth this idea of white sight and then provide several cases in which it is operating. But could you first kind of summarize for us what you mean by white sight and how you arrived? to that as a concept.
1: Sure, of course, Anna, thank you for that. So sight, I think of it as a technology. I think of it as an operating system, if you like, that enables the production of something we call whiteness. Now, as you yourself just very nicely outlined, no one is born white, we become white. And that's the same phrasing that I would use from Simone de Beauvoir, where she says, one is not born, but one becomes a woman. In other words, that these things are produced collectively, socially. And the hope then behind the project is that they can be unlearned, that if we become aware of them sufficiently, we may be able to reconfigure the ways that we think about looking and seeing. What I wanted to say in in the book is that as a technology, white sight is a way of claiming And erasing land and space. That it sees what there is to see and and erases everything that was previously there and claims it for itself. And the funny thing is that we kind of know, actually, if you think about it, you know what white site is because we experience it all the time. It's that moment when a police officer comes up to a person in a vehicle and makes an immediate judgment on how they're going to proceed based on what they think they see. So we've had, yet again, we've had to confront this with the dreadful case of Tyree Nichols. But one of the things that has become clear in analysing that appalling incident in Memphis is that it's happening every day, that the numbers of people killed by police haven't declined since 2020. They've actually increased disproportionately, black people, disproportionately people of colour, and especially disproportionately Indigenous people. Now, that's because there's this instant judgment. But we also saw on the same day that George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis back in 2020, in the morning of that day, we saw what became known as the Central Park birdwatching incident. And this is a kind of parallel example of how sight operates in everyday life. Here's a woman with the University of Chicago MA. She works for a very fancy financial investment firm. She's going for a walk with her dog in Central Park and a man approaches her who happens to be a bird watcher and he mentions to her that this is a part of the park in which dogs are supposed to be kept on the leash so they don't attack the birds. Instead of talking about that issue, she panics, she freaks out, and she starts saying loudly, African-American. In other words, White Sight has kicked in. She threatens to call and does call the police. And luckily, the bird watcher Christine Cooper, had left by that time and also had videoed the whole encounter, so we were able to see it. So White Sight, once one has learned it, is this means of Creating encounters between people into hierarchical and potentially violent encounter. And what seemed to be necessary was to think how could this be the case? How could how could we take so quickly the decision to accelerate to, in the case of the police, using violence, or in the case of the passerby, calling the police, which is a way of creating violence? And I wanted to see it as a legacy of the long histories of colonialism, in which we see this in every monument to Christopher Columbus. Columbus strides onto the onto the shore, plants a flag with one hand, and with the other hand kind of takes in the land in front of him, and it's his. And there's actually a, a term for this in law. It's called adverse possession. It means you come and you take land. After a while, it becomes yours. It's a very odd workaround or loop in the legal system. Because it doesn't, if I take your couch, it doesn't become my couch after five years or six years. But if I take your land, it does. It's this kind of extraordinary, extraordinary situation. And that requires an active not seeing. It requires not seeing who's already there, what's already there, and Thereby claiming it, and the, the colonists have a term for this, terra nullius, which comes from Roman law, and it literally means nothing land. And I want to take that literally, I want to say, you know what, they see this land as nothing, as as blankness. And they, because there's nothing there, then you can claim it and you can say now, I am the one that cultivates it, I own it. That, that practice has become so secondhand, so so common, so casual over this half millennium that you actually have to kind of call attention to it and say, what do we think is actually happening in this moment? And to realize that not only does it structure those moments of violent encounter that I mentioned before, but the ways that we understand the very processes of seeing themselves through technologies like perspective, which structure every visual device that we have from the cell phone to the drone. That they continue to articulate that principle that one person sees and what they see, they become master of.
0: Yeah, and that claiming of the land, um, the land of blankness, eventually becomes, you know, colonization, uh, even deforestation, so that the white colonial can see. The indigenous and African people that they are um, controlling, who they are surveilling, ultimately. Um, So in the context of the plantation and spatial organization of the plantation in terms of white colonialism and slavery, could you talk a little bit about your theorizations there?
1: Yes, this is, I mean this is built in you know that the plantation is administered by a man whose job is called the overseer and not in every European language but in most European languages and obviously in English and that tells you what I think in a sense you need to know but if we look at the actual practice of being an overseer it tells you something of the power of white sight because here is one person who is in charge of administering land forced labor, animals all kinds of in a very coordinated way through their practice of seeing it and of course there's violence there's I mean there's astonishing violence that backs that up and that's what always happens with white site is the gap between the reality the whiteness projects onto the world and the reality that there is is closed if you like or corrected by the application of violence but Nonetheless, this is a regime that lasts for centuries. And it imagines then the plantation as something that is to be dominated by being seen. And after the fall of slavery, the people that practiced it themselves described it as a kind of magic. They they couldn't quite believe themselves that they'd been able to pull this off for so long. And what I see it as is, again, the application of a technique that had been learned for a century or so in Europe that's then applied in the colony. So the perspective, which is a system of representing three dimensions in one, creates this very narrow pyramid of seeing in which things recede appropriately. We, get, we become used to so used to seeing that that we don't realize it a convention. And this is what the overseer does has this kind of narrow vision, but it claims to be able to see everything by moving that vision around. The modern counterpart to this is the drone, which also has a pyramidical frame of vision. It claims to be able to see everything and can turn that seeing at a second's notice into violence. So the old kind of phrase, if looks could kill, has in both cases been the truth. The look of the overseer, if he chooses, he can kill, and the drone can do the same thing. So the plantation becomes to me the absolute workshop of Whiteside, the place where it is literally worked out in practice on a daily basis by people whose job has that name, generating the first spectacular wealth of modern racial capitalism, by which I mean the kind of profit that we're now accustomed to where we see financial traders and others making unbelievable amounts of money in the way that you or I are never going to. The first time that really became possible was through the practices of plantation slavery. And that generates an entire edifice of modernity and capitalism. One of the things that I've been tracking recently is through the University College London database of what happened to the money that was paid to people who owned slaves and they were paid reparations. And some much of that money was put into creating art galleries and museums. So the National Gallery in London, its founder was someone who got compensation for so-called for having owned human property, the Tate, again, the Tate family was sugar a sugar family and had generated much of their wealth through slavery. Individual paintings were purchased with the money generated by these reparations, payments for white slave owners. And suddenly you begin to see that this is a beginnings from which an entire edifice of racial capitalism has grown.
0: Yeah, I think about that a lot. Um, the existence of the term cash crop is in some ways... of the epitome of of marxist thinking about well if it's applied to the plantation and with a racialized lens the fact that enslaved people were forced to work for the ultimate alienation of alienated labor which was surplus value that literally was just being turned into cash for the overseers it wasn't even used to sustain people um in terms of feeding them or clothing them, et cetera, it was literally a cash crop. And um, thinking about it through that lens has been um, taking a lot of my attention recently. And what was buttressing slavery and what was supporting the ability to and the justification of enslavement was this kind of racial pseudoscience that was happening, um, at that time. And you, you focus on kind of the, the aspects of the manifestations in art, uh, European art, or art developed by white identified people. Um, and then the visuality of what they were trying to, when they were trying to typologize these racial groups. Um, so could you talk about that a little bit as well?
1: Of course. Um, I mean, I think racializing, which is the term I use in the book, to mean that race is never found, it's always made. And it's made on the plantation. It's made in by the practices of plantation slavery. Through so-called slave law is where the categories of white and black become materially distinct ways to live. But at the same time and in the same frame, resistance is always being produced. That there's no moment of enslavement where there was not resistance, whether it's in Africa on the slave ship and certainly on the plantation. By the late 18th century, as you know, of course, that resistance built into active revolution and and the island of Haiti, this is the first successful revolution of the enslaved against the slave owner and the colonizer, which continues to haunt the Americas to to this day, the spectre of Haiti, as it was called in the 19th century, and for which Haiti has not ceased to be punished since 1791. Almost as soon as the Haitian Revolution happened, the general understanding of whiteness, as in some way related to the classically inspired statue, becomes very specific. And instead, whiteness becomes identified directly with a specific statue, that of the Apollo Belvedere. This is a sculpture that we know as a second century of the Common Era Roman copy of a Greek original that's now in the Vatican and was rediscovered during the Renaissance. And it is white, but it's white by accident. In the ancient period, it would have been very brightly colored, and we're seeing now scholars recreate some of those bright colors. If you happen to be in New York, they've, there's a little exhibition of those in the Metropolitan Museum. And they're very striking to see, even, even though I've known this for many years. When you actually see it, they're very gaudy, actually. They're almost garish, not in themselves, but to eyes trained by the idea of whiteness and white marble and white columns, none of which are ever decorated all of which is a fantasy, a myth, a pure accident that the paint had worn off by the time the Renaissance came along and started thinking about it. So this sculpture, the sculpture of Apollo, becomes the epitome of whiteness, and it does so for a number of reasons. One is that Apollo is the god of the sun. Uh, He is uh, this epitome of male beauty. There's always a kind of homoerotic aspect to whiteness that's, always disavowed and always there. And the other is this way in which no individual white person can ever epitomize what it is to be white, because historically there has been no such separation. that people have had children with each other, regardless of so-called ethnicity and background, for, for, for the longest time. And even the theorists of white supremacy knew this so that there was no individual white person that they could rely on to be the perfect type of whiteness. Now, when I used to teach this in the 1990s, I almost made fun of it. I would say, well, this is kind of laughable that there's no actual white person who can be properly white. But now I look at it slightly differently because I see the statues as acting as a technology, as an infrastructure of whiteness that has been all around us for the last two centuries. And what it does is this very interesting and unusual process by which they become so familiar that we de-notice them. That is to say, we pay no attention to them, we simply don't see them, or rather, they don't see us, they don't call to us. Whereas... After Charlottesville, I remember vividly watching a documentary and some African-Americans who lived in that town saying, I always felt watched by that thing in a way that I think the white residents of Charlottesville did not. They just simply didn't see it. And so the statue comes to actually articulate a database, a presence of whiteness, wherever it is. And actually, when you start looking around, they're everywhere. In, especially in colonial cultures, the Confederate statues, of which there's still about 700 in the, in North America, have to be added to that. All the different statues of colonizers and settlers, Columbus and so on. And then all the place names, all the markers, all the derivatives, the Columbias, the Columbuses, and so on. By the time you do that, you realize that you're living in a kind of saturation culture. Now, what's often said to me at this point is, well, look, I mean, if you take all this down, you know, this is a tremendous erasure of history. And I would say, no, it's not actually, because the putting up of all these statues was the erasure of history. The idea that colonialism was a was an unmitigated good for everybody, forgetting the genocide of the indigenous, 40 million people died in the Americas as a result of white colonization, war, slavery, and disease. That's a genocide that's unparalleled. When we talk about the Confederacy, the statues that went up created a myth, the myth of the lost cause, the myth of honor and decency, instead of a war in defense of white supremacy and slavery, which is what it actually was. None of those statues were made during the Confederacy. They have no evidential basis towards the Confederacy whatsoever. So we reveal history by taking these statues down. And we discovered something else too, which is that they work as a distributed network like the internet, by which I mean that each statue itself disseminates white supremacy in its own area, and you have to take them all down to get rid of them all. Now again, people will say to me, "Well, this is a very extreme position, isn't it?" But I would, what I would say is, look back to what we actually did at the end of the Second World War, as the Allies. The Allies went into Germany and removed everything. If you look at their executive order to get rid of not just statues but memorabilia, anything they said that would tend to continue or to perpetuate either Nazism or the German military tradition. So if you replace those two terms with white supremacy or the Confederacy, you would then think, see that we would have to undergo a much more thoroughgoing removal than we currently have. And we know why we have to do it, because we already did it. And in the western part of Germany, it worked. It didn't happen in the eastern part of Germany. And that, unfortunately, has been the place in which, a, you know, residual white supremacy was cultivated and has grown uh, and has again become a threat in more recent years.
0: Yeah. And that brings me to what you talk about in terms of the tear and the fabric of whiteness. Um, in conjunction with strikes against whiteness in terms of protests, et cetera. Um, So could you talk about that a little bit?
1: Mm, Sure. So can you hear that noise? Okay, good. There's a noise outside, but I'm sufficiently insulated. Okay. White reality is the projection of whiteness's imagined view of the world onto the world. When you take something down, that perpetuates or stores or distributes that view, it creates, in my view, a kind of tear in that reality. You can see, you can feel. So when we took down the statue of Robert E. Lee, for example, in New Orleans or in Richmond or in many of the other, or in Charlottesville, and when you look at those plinths without the statue on it, you can see, you can feel that tear. There's a gap, there's an absence, and it almost invites something else to happen. So in New Orleans, when they... They took that statue down in 2017. And then last year, African-American sculptor Simone Lee was invited to place a sculpture in that space. But she chose not to put it on top of the pedestal. She put it on the ground next to the pedestal, a sculpture of the African-American, excuse me, the syncretic Atlantic world deity Mami Wata, who represents the spirits of the ocean and water and so on. But she put it on down. And... By doing that, you made two things visible at once. Mami Wata is an important figure in New Orleans' Atlantic world culture. And two, the way in which whiteness literally wants to be looked up to. It wants to be put on a pedestal. And again, we have taken that so much for granted. And so what I've been thinking about in the course of this book is how to refuse that, how to refuse to go along with that. And what I've called it, as you said, is the idea of a strike. And it's a slightly different strike to the traditional labour strike, because obviously we're not arguing for higher wages or for better conditions. We're arguing for a completely different way of being in the world. So to that extent, it's what I would call a general strike. And it's a strike then to live differently. And this is a strike one can find within the... Tradition of of whiteness itself, if you like, uh, and I think here of the figure of Bartleby in Homer Melville's short story from eighteen fifty six. Bartleby is a clerk working on Wall Street, and his job is to continue the circulation of capital by copying out contracts. And there's a very technical law office that deals with conveyancing and property so money is circulating by the circulation of these capital of uh, these contracts it's not about crime and punishment it's about contract and equity is the key aspect and on a certain day Bartleby who has been up until that point the most efficient copier in the office refuses to do that and says in this famous phrase I would prefer not to and his employer, Simply cannot understand it. I mean, it makes no sense to him. What do you mean? You would prefer not to? He for first got nothing to do with it. This is what I'm telling you to do. I would prefer not to. But he never loses his temper. He never shouts. He just continues to say that. And gradually, the term "prefer" begins to circulate around the office. Other people start to say, "I would prefer to do this." And again, the employer saying, "I don't. What do you mean? You would prefer? It's got nothing. It's, that's not part of this." but it becomes part of it. And Bartleby then subsequently, the lawyer evicts him, but he still refuses to participate in the circulation, it goes on hunger strike, and that leads to his demise. And he dies in the tombs, which is the large downtown New York City jail, which is demolished now, but has been replaced by a similarly awful structure. And it's just that possibility to refuse to not to continue to carry on as if there was no alternative. And what I think is so beautiful is that we have actually seen all kinds of examples of this since 2020, where people have just said, you know what, I would prefer not to. I would prefer not to be surrounded by depictions of white supremacy. I would prefer not to be policed by people who consider it to be their right to assault me on sight. I would prefer not to work in a lousy, mediocre job for no benefits and at low rates of pay, I would rather do almost anything than that. And now it has the name, the Great Resignation, but I would call it the Great Refusal. And the next part of this strike that I really want to call attention to is that this is above all also a feminist strike. It's always been a feminist strike. And it's a strike to say that there is the boundaries of work and labor are not just the workplace, so that you need to de-invisibilize the labor that goes on in the home, the labor of caregiving, whether it be formal or informal. And again, this is something we learned powerfully in 2020, that those who we briefly called essential are people who care, who people who make the continuation of care possible, whether it's direct care, health care, elder care, or child care, or any of the other multiple forms of care that are performed across our society, for often some of the lowest wage rates, but are, as we know, inherently essential. And so this, this, the feminist strike draws on the legacy of the feminist strike in Argentina, in Latin America, in general, which worked over the period of many years to establish that movement such that in 2017 they were able to pass a referendum enabling people to have bodily autonomy and for those people who get pregnant to choose whether to do so or not and here we are in the country that likes to call itself the greatest country in the world and so on and so forth without that right in 2023 that we have lost that ground And so, once again, the strike against white sight becomes the strike for bodily autonomy in all the manifestations of that term, the right to one's own choice of gender, the right to own one's own body, to do with it what one wishes, and so forth. And that this, then, is a different kind of striking. In the words of the artist Claire Fontaine, who whose work is on the front cover of the book, is to become something completely other than what we are. And again, that we to me means the white presenting, white identified people who have not sufficiently considered this. I've always thought that there was a need for change in how society might address its others. That's been a visible thing. But to come and to confront this directly and say, you know, it means me. It means that I have to change the way that, I do things. I have to kind of consider the way in which my own work, and my own practice and my own life contributes intentionally or not to the perpetuation of these hierarchies and to refusal hierarchies. And I was reading just the other night James Baldwin's text from 60 years ago, right now. It was published on January 31st, 1963, the fire next time. And Baldwin talks about the possibility of understanding color, not as a reality, color meaning skin tone and the racializing attribution of difference as a result of that, as a political reality, not a biological one. And he says, you know, I recognize that in our time, that's an impossible demand. But the only demands worth making are impossible demands. So when people say to me that, well, you know, the strike against whiteness this is an impossible thing, I would say, yes, absolutely it is. And that's the only sort of strike that I'm interested in having. I'm not interested in going on strike to increase my pay from $15 to $17 an hour, although, of course, I will do that. That's an important thing to do. But it's not, it's not going to really motivate my engagement with the world. This does. And one of the things that one understands, having thought about it in this way, and you're reading Baldwin and reading through the Black Radical tradition, is that it actually doesn't matter if it happens in my lifetime. I hope that it does, and I hope, certainly hope that it happens in your lifetime. But what matters is that this struggle continues. Because now, Angela Davis, who's been teaching us this for a long time, rightly says, freedom is a constant struggle. So there's not a point at which we're going to come to an end of this. We're not going to say, oh, you know what, we're done and dusted with worrying about hierarchy and the creation of difference, because that will always be you know, what Audre Lorde called dialectic. And the hope is that that dialectic creates sparks and creativity and possibility and new ways of being in the world that we haven't thought of before, rather than oppression and violence and discriminations. That's what we're striking for.
0: Yes, Um, definitely to all of that. And to to your kind of distilling of all of those complex processes and just putting it into this very clear call to action. Um, Thank you for that. Um, And speaking of calls to actions, uh, Franz Fanon, who we read in your class, who I've read a lot since, Um, could you talk to us a little bit about him connecting to you know everything that you just surveyed? Um, a little bit about his politics and his activism, and then how you kind of use that as a jumping off point in your book.
1: Thank you for that. I'd love to talk about Fanon. Frantz Fanon was a psychiatrist. Grew up in the island of Martinique, when it was still directly a French colony, as indeed it is today despite certain euphemisms to the contrary. Uh, he fought in the Second World War and at the end of the war he moves to France to train uh, in his advanced studies as a psychologist. And here for the first time he encounters European racism. In the war, racist, of course on the island of Martinique but it's predominantly a black society. Here he begins to experience something very different and he's stunned by it. And one of the Famous moment is this moment where he's journeying by train to his internship and a young child sees him and says, Look, Mama, a Negro. And he sits there and thinks, This is ridiculous. What is she talking about? And then the kid keeps saying this to get a rise out of his mother and then ups the ante a bit, says, Look, Mama, a Negro. I'm frightened. And at this point, then, the woman intervenes, says, sure, she'll make him angry, which is to really to the other white people, not to him. And panel sitting there, realising that he has been fixed, as he calls it, by something that in 1952, he calls the white gaze. In other words, white side, like, he sees it for what it is, right? because it has been revealed to him in this very direct, but everyday kind of way. And we learn a couple of things from this. We learn that... White sight is learned very young. It's learned alongside language. It's structural, systemic to becoming a person. And as a parent, I saw this even in the 2000s, raising my child and suddenly seeing out the corner of my eye what was actually going on on Cartoon Channel and places like that, where Africans were placing missionary figures into so pots to, to eat them as if they were cannibals and so on and so forth. So, that this has not ended, this moment, right? And Farrell, to me, became an extremely important person to think with for a couple of reasons. And to speak simply personally, because I think that's part of feminist politics, what Farrell understood and understands is the ways in which people of African descent and Jews are seen is essentially the same. I'm Jewish or Jewish descent. And he says this very directly in in Black Skin, White Mask. He says, pay attention when someone speaks about a Jewish person because they're talking about you, meaning a person of African descent. And then he participates amazingly in the Algerian Revolution and sees firsthand what's happening in the decolonial revolutions of the post-war period, the astonishing violence that was used by the French colonizers to attempt to keep hold of Algeria and the stakes that were being played for. One of the most remarkable insights that Fanon had was that he saw that colonialism was a world of statues. He used that phrase in 1961. And again, in decolonial context, nothing is ever a metaphor. He meant that literally. He meant, and the Algerians understood that. They went and, on the first day that Algeria was an independent country, went around removing the statues that French colonizers have put all over Algiers, the capital city uh, of that country. In between times, Fanon had been a participant at the first writing, uh, excuse me, the first conference of African writers and artists that was held uh, in Paris in 1956. And he was one of the first people to use the expression way of seeing at that conference. A way of, we now think of the, language of ways of seeing as coming from the British art critic, John Berger, who published a book of that title famously in 1972. But it's actually, it comes out of the moment of decolonizing. Fanon uses it. And in the audience when he made that speech was the Barbadian poet and writer, George Lanning, who later himself went on to write a book called The Pleasures of Exile about being a Barbadian writer in London, what that was like, in which there's a whole chapter called Way of Seeing, which is about the Fanon, Fanonian, if you like, experience of being seen by an overwhelmingly white society as black and what the possibilities of negotiating one's existence in that circumstance were. For for Lamming, the Way of Seeing is not just the encounter between the white and the black person, though, it's the way that he sees how other non-white people are seen, and that helps him to understand how he is seen. Because, as Farrow says, when you're fixed by the white gaze, you're just so overwhelmed by it that you don't have time to notice. And there's an extraordinary scene in which Lamin describes in which He's reading poetry in the newly formed Institute for Contemporary Arts in London. And everybody claps like mad before he even says anything. And he realizes he's been seen as a black person. And they don't ask him any questions, which normally every poet gets grilled because he's a black person. So it's as much as they can expect for him to say something in verse. Then the next poet gets up and he's a, Jewish poet, a man called Immanuel Litvinoff, who reads a poem that criticizes the famous Anglo-American poet T.S. Eliot for his anti-Semitism in poems that had been written before the war but had recently been republished after the Holocaust. And there's this is huge uproar, not least because Eliot himself is actually in the room. And all of this is going on. And Laming says, now I see what the way of seeing is really about. I see them seeing him and I see them seeing each other as great men, as heroes, as people capable of properly seeing the world. And he's watching all this going on and he's saying, this is like Notting Hill, by which he means the racializing violence that took place in the, London District to Notting Hill, actually several years later, but before he wrote the book, in other words, that high culture is violence. It's every bit as violent as beating somebody up in the street. What's happening to off and what happened to him? That it's about maintaining hierarchy, about maintaining distance and maintaining separation. And so what's interesting to me about thinking with Lamming and Fanon at this juncture is to realise two things. One is that when I was your sort of age and a young person, we were really not allowed to read Fennel. He was considered too violent, too extreme. And it was only in 1996 that there was a conference in London on black skin, white masks where he began to be recuperated. Even then it's, yes, black skin, white masks, yes, but Wretched of the Earth, the Revolutionary Handbook, not so much. And in recent years, we've seen the Must Fall group in South Africa who took down the statue of Cecil John Rhodes. you speak to those activists, they'll say, we used Fanon as a handbook, not as a sort of theoretical text as kind of interesting. It told them what to do. Reading that idea about colonialism being a world of statues meant this statue, this one here, that has to come down. And we've seen no, the Black Radical tradition make us rethink our understanding of Fennel, not to set aside the criticisms that we have, sometimes of his politics around gender, sometimes of his politics around sexuality, of course not, but to say, how do we think with this work? How do we learn with this work? So that we understand that the work of decolonizing has barely begun, let alone been finished, and that we need to then think not just about ending white colonial rule overseas. But to think of white colonial rule where we are, so I'm speaking to you from the unceded lands of the Lenni-Lenape people, lenape Hoking, as it was not. And the Lenape were driven out from this area early in European settlement, but there were three federally recognized tribes that identify as Lenape, who are currently in Delaware and in Wisconsin and in New Jersey that legacy continues how do we address that how do, what practical means of thinking about the undertaking of decolonizing not as rhetoric but as an engagement as a reconciliation as a ceding of land because it will be ultimately about land And all of these issues are to be found in thinking through Fennel, And he talks about, in Wretched of the Earth, how it will be from the most marginal sectors of society that a new way of understanding will come, because they have the least investment in the society as it is. Uh, he He uses an old Marxist word, lumpenproletariat, to mean those people but you don't, don't want to get too lost into the kind of the Marxist complexities of, of, of class theory. He means people we see all over the world right now, precarious workers, people without a stake in the social, sex workers, people who are forced into the black economy, people who are forced uh, to resort to petty crime, and that, that there is increasingly less place for people of that kind. I remember when students went on strike in Paris in 2005 under the slogan against precarity. And there was a great deal of hilarity in the English-speaking world. Oh, how ridiculous, you know, what a stupid thing to go on strike about. Well, it doesn't look so stupid now, does it? Uh, we all know, I think, uh, almost any level of society below that tiny fraction of immensely wealthy people, what it means to experience precarity. The Financial Times the other day described Britain and the United States as poor countries with a small fraction of incredibly wealthy people. And that jives with my experience. And that's what that's what we that's where we can learn from Fernar. Because that's he was learning from those people how to unthink his training and his knowledge that was grounded in the French classical and colonial tradition to come to a different mode of understanding of himself, his practice as a psychiatrist and psychologist, and as a revolutionary and a writer and a thinker.
0: Yeah. Um, thanks for summarizing that. And um, just briefly before we sign off, um, current projects that you're working on, what's, what's percolating currently? So when,
1: whenever you finish a book, you have a certain responsibility to it, you know.
0: And so my responsibility
1: right now is to try and engage and generate a conversation. So what I'm doing is I have a Substack which comes out every week. It's a newsletter. It's called The Week in White Sight. And I try to just update and bring the issues that are in the book, which in the nature of publishing, as everyone listening knows, you finish a book a year or so before it actually appears in the world and has to go through all the, process of review and publication. So that there was just this tiny anxiety in the back of my mind in 2020 when I was finishing. What if, and it sounds almost ludicrous to say this, what if in some way these issues had been, I don't know, resolved uh, by 2023? Well, I'm very sad to say that it appears that they have not been resolved at all uh, and that we continue to find ourselves in a context of intense racializing hierarchy and polarization, especially in North America, but I think globally. At the same time as I also see, and I want to call out and celebrate the fact that we are in many ways winning that contestation. That the statues have been removed, the museums have had to return and repatriate things that they said they would never give back as long as human history continued, that we have seen a transformation in the ways of people being represented through media to themselves, how galleries and other forms of artistic and cultural expression now do genuinely have approached things in a different way. It's important to call that win out. i say it isn't by no means the end of it. It's actually just the big, but it might be the end of the beginning. In other words, these are ways into this problem. 2020 showed us, it revealed to us the different ways in which white society is constructed. And now we have the task to continue to work with that, what I call the crisis of whiteness. Uh, so at least for a while, I'm going to be sticking with this and trying to cause trouble in the good way uh, around this issue and see what happens, you know. Uh, and that's always been the way that my work has gone is to, is to, to stay with a problem and to see what it generates next. So this conversation has been useful to that end. And you know, I look forward to having other conversations with other listeners and readers in different places and moments.
0: Certainly. Um, and thank you for doing all of that work. We really appreciate it. Um, just society needs it. So thanks so much for talking today.
1: It's been my pleasure, Anna. It's been a pleasure to be on. Thank you for having me.